Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues surrounding the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hello. Um, We are excited to be continuing a conversation that we started on our last episode of Free and Fair. If folks had a chance to listen to that, they'll remember that our topic is um, the increasing problem of polarization in American politics, even extremism in the sense that some elements of this polarization is giving us political forces that arguably could be destructive of our whole system. I mean, one way in which we've seen that is um, if you don't believe in results of elections, if you think they're stolen when they're not stolen and you deny that the true winner really won, how do you operate an electoral process? So, you know, we, Fernita and I have been talking about that on the podcast um, for a while, and we're delighted that we have Rick Pildes back as, as our guest. And um, for those of you who caught the first part of our two-part conversation, we talked a lot about this general point, and we talked in particular about the way in which primary elections, partisan primaries as the first phase of a electoral system, winnow the field of candidates in such a way that by the time you get to the November general election, your options may be limited and the relationship between the two parts of the system may exacerbate extremism and polarization in in ways that are contrary to what the voters really want, the voters overall. Um, And in the news, since we last talked, just as an example of this, we don't have to go into the details too much, but some listeners may be aware that in Georgia, Georgia being very much in the news for voting related reasons uh, because of the new law, but an L, another element of the news from Georgia is that it looks like their secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, is going to face a primary opponent of the kind that we talked about last time. So people may remember that Raffensperger, a Republican, a conservative Republican, uh, was the Secretary of State for the 2020 election, um, but he uh, counted votes with integrity and insisted on a recount be operated with integrity to the point where he upset then President Trump because President Trump wanted him to find more votes that were different from the reported totals. And Raffensperger said, we got to go by the book, we got to do this right. And as a result, President now ex-President Trump wants to find uh, someone to basically undermine Raffensperger. This is part of a nationwide pattern of President Trump being publicly announcing that he wants to find primary opponents for those Republicans who he sees as contrary to his vision or his interests or however you want to put it. Liz Cheney in Wyoming is another example. But in any event, um, incumbent Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger apparently will, re- will face uh, in the primary in 2022, when Raffensperger's up for re-election, uh, an incumbent member of Congress, Representative Jody Heiss, I believe is how you pronounce his name, and w- from news reports, uh, Representative Heiss is, um, you know, recruitment from Trump, believed Trump when Trump claimed that last year's election was stolen, 
and and Heiss has been vocal in that respect. So the prospect is we could have a fight over who gets to supervise elections in Georgia between Raffensperger on the one hand, speaking up for the truth the way most of us who observe the process see it versus his opponent who comes from the Trump world claiming that the election was stolen. And so how that primary election as the first stage of the process may um, affect the choices that the general election voters in Georgia have is just one more illustration of the kind of things that um, our guest Rick Pildes has been thinking deeply and importantly about, and which is why we're so delighted to have him back. And so to reintroduce uh, Rick and to start us off uh, in our conversation, uh, Franita, let me turn it over to you. All right, thank you so much, Nan. I'm very happy to have this conversation. In fact, uh, I can't think of a better person to have a conversation with other than our guest, Rick Pildes, who is the Sutler Family Professor of Con Law at NYU. Um, in addition to all of his other titles, right? Supreme Court advocate, uh, editor of one of the finest election law case books, right? <laughs> um, just all around expert on uh, uh, many of these issues, including some we're gonna discuss today. Um, so in our last podcast, we um, started sort of moving past the, uh, the problems of the 2020 election, just sort of the, the, the problems on the ground that led to January 6th and, and focusing more on questions of how do we fix this? Right, what is the path for? What do we need to think about ahead of the 2022 midterms? How do we make things better in order to avoid another January 6th? Um, and I really think your story sort of highlighted that we're still in this space where the potential for things to go wrong uh, still looms large. Uh, so last time we talked a lot about the primaries and the primary process and trying to reduce polarization. Um, but Rick has also touched on this, this topic of polarization in another context as well, um, namely gerrymandering. Um, so I want to invite, uh, namely gerrymandering and, and campaign finance as well. Um, his recent New York Times op-ed also touched on those issues. So I wanted to invite Rick uh, to talk a little bit about that to, to get our conversation started today. Okay, so thanks very much, Fernita and Ned. It's um, great to uh, have the occasion to chat with, with both of you again about these issues that we all you know care so much about. Um, you know, as you mentioned, um, I've been focused since January 20th on political reforms that in particular uh, may help mitigate the extremism and the polarization in our politics. There are a lot of things to worry about with the election system and access to the vote and all of that. Um, but this is the particular focus that um, uh, I've been pursuing. And so one of the issues I uh, think is important in this context uh, to discuss is gerrymandering and whether the way election districts are designed can either further accentuate polarization or help mitigate it to some extent. Uh, now, for many, many years, I'd say probably 30 years now, I'm reluctant to try to figure out how long, you know, I've been an advocate of taking districting out of the hands of the most self-interested political actors, the state legislatures, and putting it into the hands of um, commissions of one sort or another uh, which is the way other democracies that have election districts design their election districts. There's no other system, at least that I know of, in which um, election districts, which uses election districts in which they have to be designed regularly to keep up with population changes, uh, actually gives this power in the first instance to uh, self-interested um, legislatures. But, even if we take the process out of the hands of legislatures and give them to 
commissions uh, of one sort or another, um, there's still the question, the underlying substantive question, well, with what criteria, with what policy or purposes ought districts to be designed when they're not being designed for self-interested partisan reasons? And that's a lot more difficult question than many people realize. Um, I think many people think if we just get this out of the hands of self-interested politicians, everything will be fine. Um, but actually there, there, there are a lot of competing values to bring to bear in the redistricting process. And there's no agreed upon you know, right way uh, to draw election districts uh, to serve a number of different democratic values, all of which are, are important. So the emphasis I've been placing on how districts should be designed, and again, this goes back a long way, um, is that I think there ought to be significant weight given to the value of creating competitive election districts to the extent possible, subject to you know, various legal constraints um, that would still have to exist, like uh, requirements of the Voting Rights Act, uh, the requirements of you know, equal population in districts. Um, but um, my view has been that uh, legislators who face kind of cross pressures in general elections, who have to actually compete in the general election for the marginal voters who are going to be able to determine the outcome in a competitive district, um, that that's good for the system overall. It keeps legislators more accountable than when they're running in general elections in completely safe seats where they know their party is gonna win the seat no matter what positions they take. Um, and I think more importantly, um, it, it uh, leads to the election of legislators who are more likely uh, uh, because of these cross pressures to keep their seats from, from voters uh, of, of different interests. Um, it, it, it generates legislators who are more likely to be uh, open to compromise negotiation, to be less extreme, you know, kind of ideologues from the, the wings of the parties. Um, and so mo many people who are you know, worried about gerrymandering are primarily worried about it in terms of the partisan outcomes um, the district designs produce and whether the districts are designed in a way to be fair to the two political parties in terms of the outcomes that are likely to be produced from a districting plan. Um, and I think that's a, a relevant consideration also. But keep in mind that a plan could be fair in terms of the partisan outcomes it produces in the sense that let's say, statewide Democrats get 55% of the vote and they have control of roughly 55% of the seats in let's say a state legislature enacted from these districts. Um, a plan can be fair in terms of the partisan outcomes it produces, but still be one in which everyone is elected in a district that is completely safe for their party, where on general election day, uh, they'll win 75 or 80% of the vote kind of predictably. And so what that does is it leads politicians to care only about fending off potential challenges in the primary. And those challenges typically come uh, these days from the more extreme polls of the party. Um, and legislators who uh, not only wanna be 99.9% .9 safe 
in their seats. But as one expert witness I had in the case testified, they want to be 99.9999% safe in their seats. Um, you know, we'll do everything they can to try to fend off these, these challengers in advance so the challengers don't actually arise. I mean, the best thing, of course, is if you position yourself so that you don't even have a primary challenger and then you're in a safe seat, you know you're going to win the general election. And so that pushes even more centrist kinds of um, candidates or incumbents to take more extreme positions to try to avoid primary challenges from the wings. Uh, and so um, while it's important that districts be designed in a way that produces partisanly kind of fair outcomes, that's one value that has to be taken into account with other important values. And I think um, it, it, the, the competitiveness of districts or trying to take make the competitiveness of districts an important value also in this process to the extent districts can be designed in that way to produce more competitive races would be a very good thing for the system overall and for our politics and for the ability uh, uh, to put together coalitions that can actually govern. Okay. Now, um, this view is challenged. I mean, this, this is actually very interesting. There's a big, when I say this, I will immediately get pushback from political scientists. And there's a big disjuncture between the journalists and others who cover Congress on the ground and the way political scientists in their sort of aggregate and data studies um, kind of look at this process. So um, the, if, we're very familiar with this. You know, if you read stories covering Congress, you're always reading about the legislators from swing districts and how, you know, they are more moderate and they may push policy in this direction or that direction, or will they go along with the party or defect from the party or what changes will they require to be made in, the, in a bill to make it, you know, more a more centrist, you know, kind of prod, product. Um, and that's just completely conventional reporting on Congress. And yet, if you look at the political science data, um, it says, uh, and Nolan McCarty is the sort of um, leading researcher on this, um, that it doesn't make any difference whether politicians are elected from safe seats or competitive seats because they all vote the same way. So how can there be this disjuncture, right? How, how can the people, the, the people who actually are covering Congress on the ground, who are very attuned to the difference between politicians elected from competitive seats and safe seats and their positions on issues, and the political scientists who say none of that makes any difference, how, how can that be explained? Um, and I think the answer is that what the political science approaches to this do is they look at all of the votes on roll call voting that are taken. Uh, and they use what are called these DW nominate scores to locate legislators based on roll call voting. And when you do things that way, and especially when you aggregate all the roll call votes, um, it turns out that when it comes to the actual vote, politicians um, within a party don't vary a lot depending on whether they come from safe seats or competitive seats. But that obscures huge amounts of what's most significant in the legislative process. Uh, by the time bills are put on the floor and are voted on, 
there's been a tremendous amount of negotiation uh, within the factions, within the party. Um, and the party leaders have to try to, you know, accommodate the, uh, the, 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 the candidate, the, the office holders from safe seats who have maybe more moderate or more centrist positions, the politicians from safer seats. Um, and lots of changes are made to legislation to accommodate these competing interests. Um, and so, uh, and some things aren't brought to the floor because there's not enough consensus in the party because there is in fact a difference in the views of moderates and or those elected from safe seats and those elected from competitive seats. So by the time we get to an actual vote, then the bill has been worked out in such a way that most people from the party are gonna support it or oppose it. The other thing is lots of roll call voting is purely party messaging voting. Uh, the party knows this is not gonna get enacted into legislation, the whole point of of messaging legislation is to try to differentiate your party from the other party. Um, as Francis Lee's work has pointed out, given how fine the margin of control in the House or the Senate is, a lot of voting is exactly about this. It's about trying to differentiate your party from the other party, knowing that this is not gonna be enacted into law, either to make the other party take a tough position, uh, a tough vote or to, you know, let your side stand up for something that's not going to be enacted into law. Uh, and when you have me party messaging votes, kind of almost by definition, you're going to have most of the party or all of the party supporting that. Uh, it's, it's a free vote in some sense. I mean, because you know this is not actually going to be enacted into legislation. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm completely open to the thought that we need, you know, more data work on this. Um, but my view is that the people who study Congress on the ground have a better grasp of the dynamics in Congress than the political scientists who are studying it from, you know, 5,000 feet up and aggregating all these data points that only come from roll call voting, um, which misses where most of the action is and most of the differences between people in competitive seats and safe seats are. So I know that I will have resistance to this from political scientists. Um, I've already gotten some pushback, which, you know, I certainly expected on this point, but my view remains that uh, electing politicians from competitive seats creates a lot of cross pressures on them, pressures to attract voters in the middle of the spectrum. Um, that uh, generates more moderation in Congress. Um, uh, that means the, the party uh, polls cannot control essentially positions through their control over the primary election. Um, and I'll just add one last thing, and I'm sorry if I'm going on too long about this. You can see that, you know, I'm pretty engaged with the issue. Uh, but there's a great paper that's about to come out from a political scientist at Princeton named Brandis. Um, I should have looked up her last name, Ware um, Combs. Yeah, apologies if, if she ever listens to this, um, which um, shows that politicians in safe seats are a lot more responsive to national political donors who are highly polarized than politicians elected from competitive seats who are more responsive to their local districts. And so I think this is really important work when it comes out because it's gonna drive home 
that when you look at, um, as she does, when you look at the most important issues, not all the issues lumped together into one big mass, including ones people are voting on that they know will never be enacted into law. But when you focus on the most important issues and you look at voting patterns, there's a significant difference between people who come from competitive districts and people who come from safe seats and the ones who come from safe seats are more polarized. So I think that I had these views before this paper was produced, but now that this paper is produced, I think it's gonna unscramble some of the conventional wisdom in political science. So anyway, it's all a long saga to say, I would like to see a lot of weight given among other values in the process of redistricting when it's done by commissions or even if it's done by legislatures to trying to create to the extent we can subject to other legal constraints, um, competitive districts. I think that would be good for the system and it would help mitigate to some extent polarization. So that's, that's my perspective on the gerrymandering issue and how it feeds into the larger themes that we're talking about here. Rick, can I ask a clarification question? Um, because it seems like, and, and I really appreciate your thoughts, because something I've always wondered about is the assumption that uh, if, you know, the push towards having commissions draw the districts means that you'll have more competitive elections, because they'll draw competitive districts where plausible in a way that state legislatures just simply won't do that. Um, but I've always wondered if these commissions are subject to capture <laughs> by the partisans. Um, in a way that it leads to a situation in which the outcomes are not truly different. And if you've ever run across any of that in your studies of this issue, uh, because then that presents a slightly different problem, particularly if we're, you know, pushing commissions as a solution when uh, we might have just, you know, sort of shifted the incentive structure here. Yeah. So one thing I'll say about that is that um, it's important in these discussions uh, not to take the view that commissions, and they can be designed in different ways, and they're better and worse designs. Um, some of them are more bipartisan with the tiebreakers. Some are you know, looking for more independent kind of commissions. But in any event, you know, it's important not to say that um, they will be these perfect uh, entities of completely uh, um, sort of nonpartisan uh, kind of commitments or whatever to, to districting. They might be. But what I always say about this is it's much better to at least have this process done at one remove from the people who are most directly personally affected. Their seats are on the line when they're drawing their districts or the districts of their allies. And so you don't have to think these independent or bipartisan commissions are perfect to think that they're a better alternative to the status quo. Now, there is data on this. Um, Nick Stephanopoulos actually um, has done some um, good work pulling together data uh, on, on uh, which shows, I should say, uh, that plans drawn by commissions um, are not nearly as biased in partisan terms as plans drawn by, through political processes that one party controls. So we, we do have some pretty good information about that. Um, some commissions have been more controversial than others. Um, some have been, you know, thought to have done a better job than others. Um, Arizona had an, indep an independent commission drawing its districts, uh, which became uh, understandably, I think, to some extent controversial um, uh, last time around. Uh, 
because some of the votes uh, by the, the, the fifth person, the chair, who's supposed to be the kind of independent um, decision maker, um, seemed consistently to come out one way rather than another way. So that led to some you know, partisan unhappiness. But, but by and large, I think that um, you, know, you look at other countries that have used these kinds of commissions uh, and you look at what experience we have in the States and uh, I do think the commissions, they don't necessarily produce competitive more competitive districts unless that's a specific legal requirement. Um, but they certainly produce less biased plans um, in partisan terms. By the way, it's also horrible for these legislatures to engage in the redistricting battle every year. It's the most poisonous thing they do um, because their, their fates are directly on, on the table. And so I actually think it would be good for legislatures to, to not have this power uh, because it, it destroys cooperation opportunities from the very outset of the decade um, when this is the first thing they do. Um, so, that, yeah. Sorry. No, on that point, um, so I have a question that probably is, leads to a solution that's maybe too theoretical to be practical, but I'm curious as to your view on it. And that is, I mean, I, by the way, I come at this from the same premise that you do, that it would be good to have competitive districts because it's good to have competitive elections in general. But some of our electoral um, elections are necessarily in jurisdictions that aren't districted, like any statewide election, whether it's US Senator or governor or what have you. And, you know, I've always thought it was the obligation of the political parties to be pragmatic and flexible enough to find candidates who can be competitive, taking the jurisdiction as a, as a given. And so you do see, for example, Governor Larry Hogan in Maryland, who is out of step with the dominant brand of the Republican Party, but he's a good Republican you know, for Maryland, which is otherwise a blue state, and Massachusetts has a version of this. Um, and I have heard some people say, including actually journalists who say that, you know, the, the, if the parties were better at candidate recruitment, um, even in districted elections, that they could undo to some extent the, I mean, I, I hate gerrymandering like we all do, but, you know, some of this is on the parties to do candidate recruitment. Anyway, to get to my question, would we be better off long term? to your point about not making the legislatures rewrite the districts every 10 years, if, in, if the way in which we equalize political power was rather than redrawing lines, had fixed jurisdictions in terms of boundaries, and as population shifted every 10 years, we actually, we gave the representatives in the legislature fractional votes. So, you know, a city of 10,000 people would elect one member and a city of 15,000 people would elect another member, but to comply with Reynolds versus Sims, one person, one vote, in, in a world of computers, you could make the representatives have power relative to their constituency um, and you'd fix the boundaries. So you'd never have to redistrict and we wouldn't have to worry about gerrymandering. I mean, is that just a crazy, crazy idea? That's, well, that's, that's fun to think about, I have to say. Let me back into it by putting something else on the table first that's more modest. Um, so the Supreme Court 
doctrine was understood, rightly or wrongly, for many decades is with respect to congressional districts to require essentially exactly equal numbers of people in districts. And, you know, that, that led to cases where literally, you know, districts that had 19 fewer people out of six, 700,000, you know, people were unconstitutional because they were off by that tiny, tiny, tiny margin, which is, of course, smaller than the accuracy of the census data in any event as a statistical matter. Um, so, uh, and I thought about this particular idea when um, I noticed in Maine, which has two congressional districts, which had minor deviations from equality in the 2010 round of redistricting. So they had to redraw those districts and it led to huge political battles in Maine that went on for a long time and ended up in court and all of that. If they could have kept those districts the same because there was a little bit more forgiveness in the doctrine about how close to equality you have to get, you, you wouldn't have had to redraw those districts at all. So there's an important decision the Supreme Court issued out of West Virginia called the, the Tenet case, which I think is, is much underappreciated um, by redistrictors and their lawyers. Um, and we'll see in this decade if it actually, you know, makes more of a difference um, than it seems to be in the discussion so far. The Supreme Court in this Tenet case said for the first time in decades, um, you don't have to get to exact equality of population if there are essentially if there are good reasons, like keeping counties together for some deviation from perfect equality, that, that's tolerable. Um, and so one small way without going to your more extreme solution um, that we might uh, reduce a bit uh, some of these conflicts about redrawing districts every decade is if there's a little bit more play in the joints about how far off from exact equality. You know, if you're talking about congressional districts of 700 some thousand people, you know, if there's 10,000, 15,000, I mean, what's a 10% deviation is 70,000. You know, um, if, if, if I think the court was trying to open the door to a little bit more play in the joints which could lead to more stability in districts in some places over decades. I don't know if redistrictors will take that up, op, op, if they'll understand that, if they'll take the option up, because they're always worried that their plans are gonna be struck down in court. And the most risk averse thing to do in terms of avoiding that prospect on this issue is get the population exactly equal. But um, no other country requires that level of equality across populations in its districts. And I think that extremism here where I don't think you're really serving any meaningful value, you know, by saying a district of 700 some thousand people, if it's off by 10,000 from another district next door, that, that that's a significant, you know, dilution of anyone's vote. A little, that could help a little bit. Now to your more radical solution or approach, I've never thought about that. Um, I think it's very intriguing. Um, we'd have to figure out what the baseline is we would start from, like which districting plan is the one we're gonna lock in place from which all of these mathematical adjustments to voting power will then be made. That would put enormous pressure uh, you know, on how that, that, that baseline plan was drawn uh, to be sure. Um, one reason I like using counties as building blocks for districts is because counties, uh, you know, the, the lines were drawn long, long, long ago. 
Um, and they, for the most part, weren't drawn for partisan gerrymandering kinds of purposes. <clears throat> so they're a little bit more of a veil of ignorance kind of, you know, building block. Although, of course, these days, you know, we know with geographic sorting, um, you know, a lot of counties are dominated by voters of one party or another. But in any event, um, you know, I, I, so I think that's one issue to think about with your proposal. And I guess the other issue is you always have to worry about public, public acceptance of, you know, policies about the design of the political process. Um, will voters be comfortable understanding that their representative might get five tenths of a, of a vote you know, in this decade and next decade, next decade, eight tenths of a vote, or you know, however this this would be worked out mathematically. But um, gee, it is that is interesting to think about. I mean, I haven't given it any thought, so it's it's an intriguing uh, idea. I haven't really tried to analyze down to the ground yet. Those are my initial questions about it. All right, so let me shift the conversation a little bit because I do think that um, one of the the best things about Rick's approaches is that it's looking at the system as a whole. Um, so over the course of the last uh, podcast and a half now, we have talked about uh, a few different areas in which we can make changes to try to uh, reduce the levels of polarization. But Rick has also touched on this issue in the context of campaign finance in very important ways. Um, and so I want to give him opportunity to talk about that because to me it sort of completes this picture of just, you know, changes that we can make across the board in order to address this core flaw in our democracy. Um, well, thanks. Yes, this is something I'm definitely also interested in, in talking about uh, and thinking about. So, um, you know, as most of your listeners probably know, uh, the big direction for campaign finance reform has shifted over various years. Um, and now it's coalesced around a, a newer approach, which is called um, public funds to match contributions from <coughs> small donors. Small donors are defined as in federal elections as those who give $200 or less to a candidate. So there was a time when uh, there was an interest in trying to you know, regulate uh, contributions and spending. The Supreme Court held you can't regulate spending. There were efforts to still regulate the system by putting caps in various places. Um, I think that that approach has not turned out to be very effective um, in most of the goals um, reformers had in mind. Um, there was a time when there was an interest and in, actually in the states, there is still an interest in what I call traditional forms of public financing, which is government gives basically grants to candidates based on um, money spent in prior elections to um, for those seats. Um, but now the energy has all shifted, the reform energy has all shifted toward trying to replicate at the national level what we in New York City have done for a while, which is the small donor matching uh, kind of program. Uh, and the idea is that, uh, and this is part of the, the uh, big political reform bill the House has passed that's now pending before the Senate. Um, in that bill, the federal government for, for congressional races would provide $6 in public funds for every dollar a candidate raised up to a certain level uh, in small donations under $200. Um, and you know that is um, offered uh, as a way of serving important democratic values about political equality, about participation, encouraging participation. Um, but I have a significant concern about it. 
And, you know, I want to say at the outset something I said last time, which is I approach this with a certain amount of humility in terms of, you know, what we know, what we don't know, what we need to learn more about. Um, uh, but um, but my concern is that what we seem to be finding out about small donor-based financing at the national level, which has only existed for house races in a meaningful form since 2018. So, I mean, this is very new. So we don't have lots of information about it. Um, but I, I'm very concerned that the candidates who are able to attract lots of small donations through the internet from around the country um, are able to do that because of all the dynamics we already understand about how the internet functions in general, which is more extreme views, more outrage, attracts more attention, attracts more flows of money. Um, and so my worry is that public financing, which is based on how small donors allocate their money, will actually fuel the extremes of both parties and make this problem actually worse in the name of political reform, because reformers are so focused on some democratic values, you know, the value of political equality, uh, of trying to encourage more people to participate in, in uh, contributing to campaigns, that they're not thinking systemically about what the overall effects on, on the political process will be from this particular reform. So let me just give you, it's, it's hard to talk about data on a podcast, but let me just give you a little perspective on this. Um, so I put together numbers in, from 2018, which is the most recent data we have available, um, which candidates uh, who, who won um, raised the highest proportion of their money from small donors. So the, the candidates who are most dependent on small donations. So um, on the Republican side, th these are the candidates who got more than 50% of their money from small donors. So on the Republican side, um, here are the names. Number one, Matt Gates. Number two, Jim Jordan. Number three, Devin Nunes. Number four, Dan, Dan Crenshaw. Um, those are the Republicans who raised more than half their money from small donors. Now, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good list, uh, you know, of, you, you know that the notoriety these individuals have, partly from their appearance on cable television, which is a major source of visibility. Uh, and uh, small donors follow visibility. On the Democratic side, uh, far and away, uh, the top is um, AOC, who raised 78% of her money from small donors. Um, then you get to Adam Schiff, Elon Omar, uh, Katie Porter, and then Nancy Pelosi, as speaker obviously attracts, you know, lots of money uh, from both small and large donors. But, but anyway, that, 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 those are the nine people who raised more than half of their money from small donors. Now, if you look at the Problem Solvers Caucus, the average amount of money those House members raise from small donors is 9%. Okay, so that's, you know, that gives you a picture just in a kind of a rough crude initial way with some numbers um, it, it gives you a, a rough sense of what I'm worried about. I don't think it would be good for our system to accelerate, to throw accelerants onto um, the, the, the wings of the parties at the expense of the more moderate centrists. I, I mean, I don't, of course, I don't think we should stop allowing people to give small donations to the internet. That would, I, I don't support that at all. But the question is, 
and you couldn't do it. But the question is, you know, how do we want to structure public financing? Um, and uh, what I want to do on this issue is I want to try to get people to think more about the choice between the two different forms of public financing, small donor matching programs, which is part of the legislation pending, versus the more traditional forms of public financing where government provides grants to candidates. Those kind of grants are much more neutral politically in terms of the kinds of candidates they favor or disfavor because the money comes from basically like the general treasury. Um, and all candidates get um, the same amount of public funds. Um, and I think it, 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 would, it would have much less of an effect in skewing the way the dollars flow uh, based on small donors. Now, as I say, I, I, I wanna be humble about this because I don't think we have much experience with small donations. And you know maybe this is gonna kind of keep changing um, the dynamics of who benefits and who doesn't. But I also think about this in connection with what we do know from the, the days of what was called direct mail fundraising before the internet. And in the world of direct mail fundraising, it was well understood the most extreme candidates and the most extreme appeals are what generated contributions through direct mail fundraising. Um, and I think there's lots of reason to be concerned the, the, the social media age will work um, the same way, uh, that the culture of notoriety, visibility, outrage, extremism um, will be what, what attracts the most attention and attracts uh, the flow of, of, uh, of small donations. And I wanna say one other thing about this, particularly kind of at this moment, um, We can make the system worse through, you know, well-intentioned campaign finance reforms. Uh, I think many of us, I mean, I would certainly say this for myself, uh, believe that the McCain-Feingold law, um, in, in, in the, the part of the law in particular that tried to cut off the flow of what was called soft dollars to the political parties, um, was the major cause in the rise of outside, all these outside groups spending the kind of money that they're spending in elections. This is not sort of widely appreciated, but if you look at the, the data after McCain-Feingold was enacted, you will see several thousand percent increase in the amount of money that was spent by outside groups compared to when they had been giving their money to the political parties. Um, Many people think that has made the system worse. Um, many people mistakenly attribute this completely to Citizens United. But if you look what happened between McCain-Feingold and Citizens United, all of this explosion of outside money was taking place already. Citizens United may have added to it, um, but um, McCain-Feingold definitely triggered that development. Um, and as I say, many of us think the system has become worse with all of the, the roles that outside money came to play. Um, and what happened in McCain-Feingold is political scientists told Congress at the time, this is what was gonna happen. There were people who said, this is a big mistake. If you cut off this flow of money to the parties, you're, you're, you're naive if you think that money isn't gonna continue 
uh, to be used to try to influence the outcome of elections. It's just going to go to outside groups that are going to spend it. That's going to make things much worse. So it's not like this was a surprise or could not have been predicted. But what happened then is you, 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 once, the, once a certain kind of momentum builds towards a certain kind of reform, it becomes like it can become like this train hurtling down the track and the newspaper editorial boards get behind it the you know lots of the lots of the coverage you know kind of all gravitates in one direction and it becomes very hard for for people to stand up and say wait a minute we need to think about this harder um it, there's a almost a, a there's tremendous pressure uh uh put on people not to express uh, those concerns, uh, in, because the bill might get derailed. These become partisan. These become you have to win the victory once the measure is kind of on the on the table. Not and to so, put you on the spot, Rick, but do you see that with HR one? Well, I think on um, campaign finance, um, uh, I I do think that's yes, I think that's true on the campaign finance part to, to some extent. I, I mean, what I can say about this is. I know that there are many Democratic elected officials who are very concerned that the small donor matching program will do exactly what I'm describing. Uh, and I know that those uh, people won't come forward and say that in public uh, because they don't want to be perceived as undermining kind of HR1 in general or being on the wrong side of, of um, uh, reform. Um, I think actually more people are beginning to, to raise some questions about the small donor financing aspect of, of the bill. Um, um, but I think it is, um, you know, it, yes, it can be hard. It can be hard once things develop a certain kind of political momentum uh, uh, for people to feel comfortable saying, wait a minute, this is, some, this is a part of this that we need to think about a little bit harder before we lock this in, you know, as public policy um, uh, for many decades. I mean, who knows, you know, it can be very hard to make changes um, uh, to the process. So uh, I, I, yes, I would, I have been trying in my own voice, in my own way to, to you know, raise some questions about whether we need to worry about whether small donor matching programs will further accelerate political polarization. I don't think anyone really wants to do that um, but I, I do worry that it's hard to raise these kinds of um, concerns, even for people who, who share them, uh, right. particularly elected officials. Mm -hmm. I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, Jessica Huseman wrote a piece um, a few weeks ago where she had talked to officials about HR1, and she was uh, promptly destroyed on social media for sort of criticizing the bill and, and sort of putting this perspective out there. And, it makes yes. you wonder about the levels of polarization and how it it's stymies debate. Yeah, I mean, look, we have a we just have a toxic political culture right now. I think we all know that. I think um, it, it makes it so hard to have sort of reasoned discussion, evidence based discussion. Um, uh, you know, there there are there are, every 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 issue becomes an existential issue. Um, uh, there's tremendous frenzy, um, you know, on both sides around any of these issues. It just it just makes it very difficult. Uh, and I think that you know, um, more academics, frankly, in law. I've said this before. I, I have worried uh, 
that more academics in law are becoming so directly engaged in politics that one of the most important independent sort of institutional environments we have for, for you know, truly independent thinking and analysis and data and all that, um, that, that we are losing some of that um, in the legal academy. And you know, I prize that enormously because there are so few institutional spaces in our culture now where people can say what they truly think and um, can be counter to the conventional wisdom if that's what's you know appropriate based on their analysis um, and their knowledge, um, and I think uh, you know I, I think academic institutions are one of the great qualities of American political culture. Our decentralized university system with so many fantastic universities, I think they're incredibly important spaces for cultivating independent thought and analysis. And I worry a lot um, that that we are losing some of that. Well, particularly the academy. Yeah. Kim, do, do we have time that I ask one question before on this campaign finance of Rick before we wrap up? Oh, I um, think that that's perfect. You can ask your question and then Rick can uh, finish his thoughts on campaign finance and then give us a final word. Uh, that, sound, that sounds great. So um, again, as someone who shares the premises of your analysis, um, you know, what I worry about the alternative approach to public financing that you sketched out of taxpayer money is there's unfortunate, regrettable sort of antipathy about using traditional taxpayer money for public financing in our political culture that I wish we could change. So my guess my question is, is there a way to combine the idea of decentralized matching so, you know, each individual voter through a tax credit system or a voucher system or something, so there's kind of we decentralize the giving in a way that it doesn't look like the government is handing over treasury funds to politicians and candidates or parties, but make the matching program or the, um, the voucher system or whatever not be to whatever candidate you want, because they could be extreme in the way you suggest. I mean, your list of nine beneficiaries was very telling, but simply just the party, you know, the central party organizations or some other way of designing a system so that you could get the, the anti-polarization goals that you've announced, but some of the decentralized funding mechanisms that seem to be the only way to make public fund funding work at the moment. Yeah, so first of all, I think this is kind of an interesting uh, way of framing things because of course, small donor matching programs are, you know, huge amounts of public money to candidates. So I, I don't know. Right, if they, but the public doesn't quite understand that, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know if the idea is you're hiding it somehow. You're, you're fooling people by um, the money coming from the government in this form rather than in a, a traditional kind of grant. Maybe you are, maybe as a matter of political reality, that's you know a way that you can get public financing for elections that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. But you know, at least here, we shouldn't obscure the fact that you know small donor matching programs are, are public financing of elections uh, to a significant extent. Um, could we structure public uh, matching programs so that um, they would match contributions to the political parties? Um, now, the political part, you know, I think political party money is 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 a good force in politics because parties support candidates. Parties are looking to gain majority control of legislative chambers. 
And they will support challengers against incumbents of the other party. They will mostly support candidates uh, regardless of the ideology, um, if they're you know the, the candidates of the party, because they want to maximize the number of seats the party has. Um, and so um, I think they help create competitive elections by being willing to fund challengers. And I think um, they have a broad array of interests behind the party. And that's why they'll support candidates of, of varying ideologies. So I think that would be good. Um, uh, there's no reason you couldn't structure matching grant programs to match money given to the political parties. I think the question would be, are small donors willing to give money to political parties as opposed to individual candidates? I mean, we live in a political culture where you know, there's a lot of hostility to the political parties. Uh, uh, many people, especially younger people, say they don't really want to be affiliated with one party or the other, even though they may vote consistently for candidates of one party rather than another. Um, so I don't know how much uptake there would be on matching programs where the dollars are going to the parties. Um, public financing in other democracies, most democracies do have public financing of elections. Most of those systems are ones in which the public financing grants go to the parties, not to individual candidates. They have more party-based systems of politics. We have systems that are, a system that is more individual-based, candidate-based. So I don't know how much you could change our political culture uh, by uh, encouraging people to give money to the parties and then matching it very generously with public funds. Um, I don't know what public per perceptions would be about public money going to the political parties as opposed to individual candidates. Um, but there's no reason in principle, you can't set up a, 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 a public funds matching program that matches dollars to the political parties. Great, thanks. Fernita, do you wanna um, give Rick the opportunity to? Yeah, I actually have a question that I think will be a, a good note to end on. All right, so so Rick, you, you've laid a lot out there in the last uh, two podcast episodes about a path forward. Um, of your proposals, which do you think is the, I don't wanna say easiest because none of this is easy, right? But which do you think is the most likely to um, be implemented? And in, in, in thinking about this question, also of the four likely to be implemented and have the biggest effect. I'm wondering if there's some <laughs> Yeah, so I guess if I if I had to say, um, I think there seems to be the most interest right now, so therefore the most opportunity for this to happen, and it would have to happen at the state level, not the national level, for changes to the structure of primary elections. Um, and that includes, you know, a number of components. Um, it includes uh, ideas like using the top two primary structure that was uh, California and Washington have, or the top four structure that Alaska is now going to be using, and it includes greater use of ranked choice voting, um, either in the primaries in the general election or or both. And there seems to be a lot more momentum behind primary election reform um, than any of the other ideas I would say I've uh, put out here. Um, we've seen that in ballot measures that have been successful recently in some states, like the measure Alaska adopted uh, in the last election, um, the top four primary with ranked choice voting. Um, ranked choice voting has done you know, reasonably well on the ballot. 
when it's come up in, in recent years. Um, more local governments have been adopting it. The state of Maine adopted it. Um, Massachusetts voted it down when they had a chance in the last election. So anyway, I guess I would say um, primary election reform combined with ranked choice voting seems the most plausible to actually get on the agenda in the next couple of years. And then we'll get more experience with how these changes, what, what changes these, these reforms do or don't make in terms of the kinds of candidates who choose to run and the kinds of candidates who are elected and then how governance is affected. You know, are these changes bringing in forces from the center more that enables more negotiation and compromise so the government can actually um, function at the state level or at the national level. And so we can overcome some of this paralysis and polarization. Um, so if you force me to choose among my babies or whatever, <laughs> and I'm trying to put on my, my realism hat, um, I suppose that's, that's what I would say is uh, the most likely place. All right. Thank you so much for that. So it sounds like we have a, a bit of a journey ahead of us as we seek to try to change the system for the better. Always, um, always. It will never stop, but we're at a right. particularly urgent moment now, I think. Right. The work of democracy is never done. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for joining us. This was a terrific conversation. Good. Um, I enjoyed it. I hope uh, somebody <laughs> listens besides the three of us. Oh, indeed. <laughs> indeed. My mom will always listen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but well, you know hello hello let me give her my <laughs> <laughs> but no this conversation is definitely a public service so, because you know we are as you point out at a moment where there has to be some change else we are in big trouble <laughs> all right so um with that uh we will end and and, and thanks so much for coming on the show we would love to have you on again all right um, thanks for having so, me so Ned, yeah. as yeah, always we're free it's a pleasure guess. Absolutely. Uh, Till next time. And thank you, Rick. This was great. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Bye. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric French and Jillian Thompson at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.